Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. We are bringing you this show not from our office and studio where we normally record these, but we've actually gone out in the field, literally out in the field, because the start of this... And hills. There's uh, fields and Fields hills. and hills. Uh, the start of this, we are around a table in an office up near, basically on the Highland Fault, but right at the end of the show, we go for a walk around and actually talk about what we're looking at. I think that'll be a first. I think it is a first. Other Apart than, from walking other, around the shows. The shows, but that doesn't count, because that's normally inside. First thing I want to say to all of our listeners is thank you. We're not quite there yet, but we have almost reached the total. By to the raise... time we get to the Northern Shooting Show, I think we would have smashed it. Yes. Because I, th- I know there's a few people that have already asked us if they can just give us some money the for weekend. The, for the chimpanzees, yeah. Yeah, and we're in the £100, if that sh- short of the goal. So. so this was a campaign that we started... A month, uh, month ago. Yeah, about a month ago, when we had our Ivan Carter on. And it, it was, it's his campaign, actually, to, to raise money's, money for a chimpanzee sanctuary in the Congo. And we decided that we would try our best to help out, ask our listeners to donate some money. And we wanted to raise £660, which would look after a chimpanzee and, and everything that goes into looking after a, a chimp for an entire year. And we are so very close now. There has been some incredibly generous donations and a lot of other smaller donations, which are just as important. And like Daz says, I'm hoping at the Northern Shooting Show this weekend, and we're going to be there in two days' time, we might be able to raise the last little bit of money and send that over to Ivan. Yep, so what we're going to do at the end of the show, I'm going to read out every person that's given us money, because they all deserve a shout-out. There's quite a few of you, so that's what we're going to do at the end of the show. And we have a winner from last week's competition, or two weeks ago competition. Uh, So we said that what we were going to do is anybody who had donated you would basically be chucked into the hat. So yep. that is exactly what we've done. And we have a winner, which was to win a set of Surefire Passive Ear Defenders and some Smith Optics shooting glasses. So, Gavin Knight, congratulations, you've won. Well done. And thank you very much, Gavin, for the donation to the chimpanzees. Uh, we know that it is going to make a difference. Yeah. So what we're going to do is that after the Northern Shooting Show, we will leave the chimpanzee thing on probably till the end of the month on our website just for people. People have a little bit more time that are catching up with shows because we know we have a number of listeners that are multiple shows behind. And then at the end of, is it May? Mm-hmm. Yes, end we of May. May. That's it. We'll take it off our shop, and then if you want to donate in the future, then you'll have to go through Ivan Carter's uh, own website, and you can donate, and we're going to give the whole lot to uh, the initiative. Yeah, it's going to be great. I'm, I'm looking forward to... And looking if we, can raise, if we can raise more by the time what we give it, then that's a bonus. That would be even better, but yeah, it, I, I'm pretty confident we're going to reach our target now, so that's fantastic. Yeah. And that's, that's down to you guys, 100% down to you guys, and those people... Um, on social media, who've responded to, um, responded to the call. It, incredible. Uh, and we will, I, I think that this has worked so well, that the next time we come up with a, a great cause like that, we will let you all know about it. You know, whether it's donating through us, which we send 100%, well, more than 100%, because we've raised a bit of money ourselves, yep. that we've, we've put into the pot, um, back and, to the and, initiative. And donated from our, you know, those people that have actually bought from the shop. Mm-hmm. Um, and they've all 
uh, given to the cause as well. Yes, because we've been we've been keeping ten uh, percent aside of everything we've been making uh, from this. Well, since we started the yes, shop, we started, yeah. and we decided that uh, we'd been holding that money, and we decided that we we're going to give all of that to the same cause. And um, then we'll move on to the next. We will, yeah. We'll yeah. let you know about different initiatives that are going on. Maybe get some feedback from from our listeners, and if there's yeah. anything that you think we should look into more, uh, and maybe support and give a call out to people to to try and support, then let us know. Mm-hmm. Good, good plan. That's yeah. a good plan. We like hearing from our listeners. We do, and we we have some fantastic emails coming through all the time. We had one the other day. It's it's massive. Yeah, and, and it was we, like we, a small essay. We do want to read some of it out at some point. Yeah, I uh, I took me a little bit of uh, time to reply to the chat, but it was it was a fantastic email, basically about how his his views had been shaped and changed by the guests that we'd had on the show, which is exactly what this is all about. And we will read out some uh, excerpts from that, but maybe not in two weeks' time. Uh, is there anything else? Oh, well, we'll, we'll get, let's talk about the Northern Shooting Show because yeah, yeah, that's the most that. relevant thing that we're just away to be. so much going on there. Yeah. So we're going to be at the Northern Shooting Show where we're heading down on Friday and it starts on Saturday. That is this weekend, the 6th of May, 2017, just in case you're listening to this in a year's time. <laughs> um, and we're going to be doing a whole array of things. From the podcast point of view, we're going to be doing two live shows. One on Saturday, one on Sunday, 2.30 each day. We've got a really uh, awesome panel lined up. There's going to be five, six people plus us uh, debating a whole ton of different topics. Uh, we're actually, I'm going to put some of the some of the, the topics and the guests up on social media probably tomorrow. So check out Podcast Into the Wilderness on Facebook uh, for that. And there's going to be a chance for people who are there who come and listen to us debating to join in. We're to going to take in. questions. And, and if, if you can't make it to the debate, come and see us. We're going to be at the Deer Focus Group. We'll be walking around the show and we'll take some caps and stuff to give away to people. Yeah, so. de- definitely come and see us. Say hi. We, we love hearing uh, love hearing from people who either watch the stuff or, or listen to the podcast. On top of that, that's not all. There is what is, I think, probably the first time it's been done, certainly on the scale, is a Red Deer Calling competi- Competition. Uh, that is, it's being run by Best Ear Call, uh, Joe at Best Ear Call, but uh, he won't won't be at the show, so he's asked us if we're going to look after it for him. So we're going to be emceeing it and helping judge it, and I think we're going to record it for the podcast if we can, because it could just yeah, be, it could be. I fun. think it could be fun. Yeah. It could be a lot of fun. And that is also happening in the Deer Focus area. So make sure you check out your uh, grab the the free show uh, leaflet booklet thing that you get when you when you go in and make sure you actually see what's going on because there's so many things actually happening in yeah, the show. it's, it's free what, it's it free is as free, well yeah. so when you come in make unlike sure a lot of shows actually yeah which is normally like eight it's nine quite quid expensive. Or something. Yeah. so flick through there and make sure you see what's going on each day so that you can go to those places and then go for your wander around in between so you don't miss out on stuff because there'll be things happening at certain times that you've got to be there for like our debate like the uh like the calling competition and Kai's cooking. Oh, Kai well. is cooking, yeah. Uh, and thank you to um, Toyota for giving us a Hilux and the Scottish Association for Country Sports for sorting this out. For yeah, us. so we've got a Hilux to go down in. We do. In fact, we've, I've got it, I've got it for a whole brand week. spanking new. <laughs> it is, uh, yeah, it's it's rather too lovely for me. <laughs> um, and the reason we have this is, as we've mentioned in previous shows, is that the Scottish Association for Country Sports who are a sponsor of this podcast and have supported it from the very first episode, uh, have discounts with a number of car manufacturers, including Toyota. So you have a chance to get a great deal of money off 
a brand new Toyota. So that is why uh, they've lent it to us for the week to drive down. So we'll we'll stick some pictures up on, on social media and you'll be able to I'm to in the market it. for a new car, but maybe not a brand new Hilux. I'm not sure if I can afford a new Hilux, but... Uh, so, yeah, they're going to be at the Northern Shooting Show as well. So if you want to speak to them about the car discount, uh, discounts as well as their actual membership and what they do, which is the most important thing, uh, then find them at the Northern Shooting Show or if you see us, we can point you in the right direction. Yep. Right, competition for this week. We do. And the competition for this week is to win a reloading manual from Hornady. It is the same reloading manual that I use myself. In fact, I think We've I have... have given away two of them, I think, already. Maybe three. Yeah. Uh, I have uh, I have a, a copy sitting on my reloading bench at home. Uh, it is the go-to place. And if you reload, you need a reloading manual, so... Yeah, and if you don't reload, there's plenty of resources online. And I believe at some point... We're going to be doing a reloading thing. Yeah, we have. Um, I have a whole reloading series, uh, which is done. Actually, I just need to go and retake the pictures for it, which is going to be going on our website, thepacebrothers.com. Yeah, so, if you win the manual, then maybe when uh, Byron gets around to putting it on the the website, then you can reload with Byron. Yeah, <laughs> uh, there's going to be lots of uh, reloading stuff going on because I, I have reloaded for a long time and I love it. It's absolutely brilliant, and it's actually something I should encourage people to do because if you are someone who shoots. Then and you don't reload. It's like the only thing I can compare it to is it's like if you fly fish and you tie flies. It's the it's same a sort of circle. Yeah, it's the whole yeah. the whole package, and you get this immense satisfaction out of being able to reload your own uh, ammunition, and also it tends to shoot better. Mm. Okay, so competition for this week is really simple. We'll uh, we'll put up a picture of the Hornady reloading manual on Facebook and on Instagram, and all you have to do is. Either tag us in a picture of you out. Uh, what did we say? We just said. I think we, we wanted just a just an awesome place. Just an awesome no. place of where you've been uh, out hunting. It doesn't matter what you, you do. You don't even have to you be don't hunting. Have to be hunting. Yeah. You could be out walking. Just awesome scenery. That's what we want. So if it's Instagram, you can't obviously post pictures underneath. So just tag us in there, and we will see it. And if it's Facebook, put the picture in below. Mm. Nice and simple. And if there's a dog in it, you get extra bonus points. What we didn't actually say right at the start of this was kind of what this podcast is about. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we managed to skip right past all of that. Uh, so this po- podcast is taking place at the Glensoch Research Farm, only a couple of miles from where our office is. We're going to be speaking uh, with a gentleman called Donald Barry, who manages the farm there. And he's going to be talking us through some of the projects that have been ongoing over a number of years and how that is relevant to the landscape that we look at today. It's a, it's a light departure from the normal normal kind of topics that we talk about, but well, from our point of view, just incredibly fascinating because it's it's out with that kind of knowledge yeah. base that we have. So if you, uh, it'll be of interest to everyone, but I think of particular interest to anybody that works the land or is a farmer or particularly, a, a, particularly like that. Mm. So if you know anyone like that that doesn't listen to the show, get them onto it. They might find it very interesting. If you're a sheep farmer in particular, yeah. you, there could be some things in here yeah. that you didn't know about. So, well, enjoy the show. And afterwards, we're going to let everybody know who was awesome and gave money. Donald, thank you very much uh, for taking the time out today to to join us on the podcast. I know we've been uh, trying to find a time that we could both sit uh, down together, yourself and my brother, to get what I think is going to be uh, a really interesting podcast and something slightly different to the the topics that we we normally talk about. 
But before we get into where where we are, which is only about 15, 20 minutes from, from our office, tell me a little bit about yourself and your background and how you've ended up in the position that you're in now in, uh, in Glen Sock. Okay, so going right back in time, I'm a shepherd's son and I was born and brought up in Ettrick in the Borders in Selkirkshire. So my family have been sheep farming for generations and I'm probably the first generation that left shepherding and hill farming and I was never meant to be farming I don't think it was in my parents vision but somehow or other I slipped back into farming so I went to Aberdeen University and I ended up doing an agriculture degree and that was never really part of the plan either left university and then went and worked for Savills the estate management company I was with them for seven years and that gave me a fantastic grounding in estate management and also gave me quite a broad overview of different land uses, um, particularly in the east of Scotland. I became a a little bit disenchanted with a sedentary life and I wasn't quite 30 and I decided that I didn't want to spend the next 10 years um, in and out of the car and in and out of the office and I got the opportunity to go and work for a client of Savills who had just acquired a hill farm. Turned out not to be a very good move and I was with them for three years. Um, I left their employment and after a short interim job, the position at Glen Soch. There we go. That's okay. The radio is off now. now. Yeah. The position at Glen Soch came up in February 2001, and I applied for it. I was shortlisted, and I got the job. Hmm. Now, I was never quite sure that there'd be enough of a challenge in Glen Soch to keep me occupied for the next five, let alone 15 years, but I've now been at Glen Soch, in fact, for almost 16 years. And... I've always found new challenges in this job, but what I particularly enjoy about working here is the diversity of people that I meet, and that can that means members of the science community who come and go all the time, um, farming and farming-related organisations that dip in and out of Glen Soch, the chance to engage with outside organisations, and the chance to... <sighs> chance to explore new ideas and to farm with quite a broad vision. Well, maybe you could go, go from that and to, to explain why, even prior to you arriving here, why this place was set up and, and how, how, it, how it's funded today and, and who's involved in, in this place that we're referring to as Glen Sock. I actually, uh, as a little bit of background for our listeners, I've spent years fishing on this same property as a as a as a young kid I, on I the lock. I remember you doing a fishing competition. Yeah, yeah, and I did point. with the, the Man, fishing. That club. was many years ago, though. Um, so so I, I spent a lot of years here, but uh, I didn't really know what was going on well, around around. If we about. use the fishing in Loch Sock as a link, that actually takes us right oh, okay. b- right back to year zero. So, about 1908, Glen Sock was inherited by a family from Perth, and they used Glen Sock as a place to come and live in the summer and during the holidays. They built the dam and created Loch Soch as a fishing and boating lake, and they built Glen Soch Lodge. And I think life for the Edwardian upper middle class was probably quite easy and quite assured, and what they didn't know was that the war was about to break out. So within 10 years of their arrival at Glen Soch, the economy and the, the world that they knew was essentially shattered. So Glen Soch came out of the war like a lot of other upland properties, it was denuded of manpower, denuded of timber, and the family probably, for one reason or another, lost most of their money. 
essentially money was devalued. And the family continued to live at Glensoch until the outbreak of the Second World War, when I'm told they went off to Australia. And around about 1943, the government became the tenant of Glensoch. And let's presume that Glensoch then fell under the watchfly of the Board of Agriculture. And what was driving their interest in Glensoch was that it was very typical of a whole range of upland farms, which were seen to be underproducing. And that was definitely right, because the 30s had been troubling and difficult times for British agriculture, in fact, for the whole of Europe. And after the war, it was recognised that more government effort and leadership was going to be required to stabilise production and to increase production, because um, no government ever wants its people to be hungry. So I've uncovered an old document that was published in 1951, by which time Glen Soch had come in into the outright ownership of the North of Scotland College of Agriculture. And the slogan on the front of the document said, More Food from the Hills. So More Food from the Hills was essentially their, the, the, the underlying ethos of the management of Glensoch throughout the 50s, 60s, and into the 1970s. And producing More Food from the Hills was seen as being so important that a new organisation was set up by the government in the mid-1950s called the Hill Farming Research Organisation. And that's still fondly remembered as HFRO. HFRO therefore became the tenant of Glensoch around about 1957 and managed Glensoch throughout the remainder of the 50s, 60s, 70s, right into the 1980s. Well, what happened during the 70s, as you know, is that we went into the European Union, or EEC as it was then, and more food from the hills was becoming less and less relevant because the work that had been done at Glensoch and on other research stations had boosted production beyond the wildest dreams of the, of the Board of Agriculture of the 1940s. And by the early 1980s, the problem was actually overproduction. And it also coincided with a change in direction by government where near-market research, as it was known, was out of favour. So putting money into projects that enhanced production systems on hill farms like Glensoch was no longer seen as being value for money to the taxpayer. So by the mid-1980s, it was decided that hill farming research, HFRO, had had its day, and HFRO was merged with another well-respected organisation, the Macaulay Institute for Soil Research, based in Aberdeen, to form the new Macaulay Land Use Research Institute. Now, that didn't mean that those long-term projects that were happening at Glensoch and the other research stations, Hartwood and Surup, came to an end, because some of those project, projects had a very long life. Um, and in fact, HFRO legacy projects continued to be run at Glensoch until as recently as 2011. We had a flock of sheep, for example, that had started their life at Surup, a research station in the borders. And I think the life of that project was about 25 years. Sadly, they're no longer with us. Um, 2011 also coincides with the point at which the Macaulay Land Use Research Institute was deemed to be no longer I think I, I'm being very unfair to say fit for purpose, but 
um, Scottish government felt that there was value added to be had by merging the Macaulay with another research organisation, and it was decided to merge Macaulay with the Scottish Crop Research Institute, which was based at Dundee, at Invergowrie at Dundee. By merging those two organisations, we brought together a broad range of disciplines. Um, so now we have an organisation that has more of a focus on food production, because Scottish Crop Research brought huge expertise in the area of crop production, soft fruit production. And we still have the legacy of the Macaulay Institute for Soil Research, which has pioneered work on soil science that is still relevant today. I think yeah. that's given everybody a good idea of how we've got to where we are, yeah. where, where we are today. And now we, we're sitting, we're actually recording this, which is unusual for us because we're normally recording over Skype or uh, over it's the phone. It's nice to actually go to our location. Yeah, <laughs> we, are, we are here with you in, um, in Glensock itself. I, I, didn't, I actually didn't give the Macaulay Land Use Research Institute a fair crack of the whip because their management of Glensock lasted from 1987 until 2011. So it was quite a period of time. Quite a period of time. And during that time, the focus didn't immediately shift away from agricultural production systems. So a research facility was built here as recently as 1991, which we still know as the Animal House. And the Macaulay Land Use Research Institute, as well as being interested in ecological matters and, and stuff to do with the the ecology of the grazed environment. Glensoch was very well suited to serve their needs there. But they were also interested in, still in the physiology of ruminants. Physiology of farmed ruminants and also the physiology of wild ruminants. So red deer are a good example of that. And work that the Macaulay did on red deer is still relevant today because Scotland, as you know, is well populated with wild red deer. Very well populated, yeah. Uh, so maybe you can paint a picture of what the landscape in, in Glensoch looks like today and the the, the different um, sort of research that's going on currently as we speak that you're, you're involved in. And you, you, you touched on red deer. I know you, you've still got red deer, you've got sheep, you've got cattle. There's a lot of interconnectedness. And maybe you could go on once you, you talk about that just to explain how um, those projects are being made relevant as we try and understand the economic and uh, economic use and efficiency of of such a place like this, which does have a a diverse variety of uh, of habitat and landscape. Yeah. So the reason Glensoch has a diverse variety of habitat is that it has a diverse range of soils, and those soils actually reflect the geology of Glensoch. So Glensoch is a property that extends to about one thousand hectares, and it is dissected by the Highland Boundary Fault. So on the southeast side of the Highland Boundary Fault, we have young geology, we have Devonian red sandstone and conglomerates, which generally speaking weather into quite deep and fertile soils. Whereas on the north-west side of the fault, we have much older, harder, acid Highland-type geology, which typically weathers into thin and infertile soils which are dominated by heather moorland. And it was the diversity of soil types and diversity of habitats that made Glensoch interesting to 
the research community in the 1950s, as well as that overarching need to produce more food from the hills. I think if Glensoch hadn't been such a diverse site, it would have been of less value to the Macaulay Land Use Research Institute. They appreciated the diversity of land cover and the sort of field botany that you get at Glensoch. Um, and again, that reflects the variety of soil types. So, recent research work has focused very much on the way that grazing herbivores, and I'm thinking here about sheep and deer, utilize their environment. It's one of the big issues that faces us in our management of the wider environment in Highland Scotland is overgrazing. While we see sheep flocks being removed from the hills, we see an increase in red deer numbers, and recent research has been looking at the interaction, the grazing interaction between sheep and deer in a controlled environment, and I'm talking here about experimental grazing plots at a landscape scale, which for us is about 200 hectares. And the, the, the thrust of the work was to look at the way in which deer would utilise the environment if the sheep were removed and vice versa. And while that work has recently come to an end, its findings are yet to be written up and made public. But the we, we already know some of the results and some of the factors that influence the behaviour of these grazing herbivores, like the quality of the herbage, how recently it has been burned, for example, are all relevant. I just wanted to, to ask about the what the, the connection was with burning. It's something that we've talked about yeah. with regard to the management of, of heather moors. And I just wondered if you had a, and, and any a any more insight into the the uh, the, the benefits to the likes of deer and sheep. Yeah. It's a very hot hot topic, should we say, right now? Yeah. So w when I came to Glensoch in two thousand and one, I was interviewed by the late Professor John Milne, and John said to me, "Donald, the first thing you must do is get on top of the burning at Glensoch." Oh, okay. And it is a hot topic because. There's a body of opinion that says you shouldn't be burning because obviously burning is releasing carbon into the environment. Mm. But in an environment like ours, which is dominated by heather, Coluna vulgaris, and is only lightly grazed, the grazing pressure isn't nearly enough to keep that vegetation under control. So we know that sheep and deer will make beneficial use of the Coluna, the heather moorland, and they'll graze it, but they won't graze all of it by any means. And if we don't burn it rotationally, over time the heather will become older and older, and the sward density will go down from many hundred plants per square metre to only a few tens of plants per square metre, containing a lot of dead material, tall, tangled, collapsed, and both unpalatable to grazing livestock and actually almost impenetrable to grazing livestock, particularly sheep. So one of my most important tasks as a land manager is to make sure that we keep up with our burning. And I get very anxious if we don't keep up with our burning. Because it's necessary to burn a certain amount of the hill every year. A, to keep it safe so that we have areas that are relatively unvegetated. 
and b to ensure that we provide a, a succession of grazable vegetation because obviously once we burn a plot it's of no use to grazing animals for a season at least but by season two or three post burning that's probably the most favored grazing land on the hill and if any if any concerned individuals ever say to me oh but animals will overgraze the plots that you have burned the best way to alleviate an overgrazed burned plot situation is simply to burn more plots so you you move that localized overgrazing problem around the farm but if you have enough areas of your hill that are at the favored say year 2 to 4 post burning stage then you won't actually have an overgrazing problem animals because aren't stupid. <laughs> because the animals have ample choice and they will move from favored plot A to favored plot B it's fascinating hearing that because it's actually it's probably the first time I've heard that explained. I mean, every, you've kind of ticked all the boxes of my understanding already, but normally we're hearing that purely from a, a sporting point Browse, of view, yeah. and then the spin-off being for for waders uh, for waders primarily when when they're talking about it in hair. But here we're we're talking about it from from an agricultural and grazing standpoint. And I think I'm, it's I'm fascinating never even to hear that. that. Mm. I I don't think that there's any conflict at all between burning from an agricultural and grazing perspective and burning from a sporting perspective. I, I mean, they'd be hand in hand. It's just that your, uh, your, your, your angle has been from the grazing angle, which I and, think is fantastic. I, I, uh, and by burning, we're trying to create a diverse mosaic of sward types. Mm. And we know that a diverse mosaic of sward types is going to be healthier and more diverse in its, in its flora and fauna mm -hmm. than the sort of heather monoculture that you get if you simply don't do any management for a number of years. And that's the situation that I found Glenn Sock in when I came in in 2001. Which is often one of the biggest arguments I see online against uh, sporting estates with burning, as they call it a monoculture just for grouse, which isn't the case. No, that's that's on, on, on the species front. I yeah, suppose, on the species yeah. front I'm talking about, yeah. Yes. So when we burn our grazing, when, when we burn our heather moorland, the first species that comes back is usually grass. So for a season or two, you will have a plot that is dominated by grass, or perhaps by vaccinium. Um, and it's only after a few seasons that the young heather seedlings begin to gain the ascendancy. And perhaps by year 10, heather will be completely dominant. And by year 12, as a manager, I'm thinking, it's time I burned that bit of hill again. But it would be very unusual for me to burn an entire plot that had been burned 12 years previously. And the point that I'm making here is that burning is such a random process. When we have a strip fire, we're probably taking out some heather that is older than 12 years and some that is much younger. And the much younger heather, if we take that out, that doesn't worry me too much because it will regenerate very quickly indeed. Mm. That's interesting what you say about grass, though, because that's actually it's another thing that I've seen uh, mentioned a few times is that all I see when, when the hills are, are burnt, on the freshly burnt stuff six months later, is grass. So you've, you've, ruined, you've ruined the heather <laughs> the heather hills because grass has come back through. But it is, it's, it's in stages, so over a, a period of time. You, you are, what you're saying is that you have the, the species that's come through first and then the heather is coming yeah. in over the top of that. The very visible grass that you'll see perhaps in a year one post-burning fire is red fescue. And it has its day. It, it's part of the succession. Another interesting point that I often make to visitors about heather is that the heather on our hills has been very heavily selected by burning. 
And there's scientific evidence to back this up, that if a, a plant community dominated by heather has been burned successively and therefore been selected for by burning, it will respond to burning. Whereas if you burn a heather community that has never been burned before, then it will not respond in the same way. So we know that the Scottish hills have been essentially, or rather the, the vegetation on the Scottish hills reflects the fact that we have been burning for a very long time. It, it, it's part of how we manage our grass and how we manage our heather moorland. If we just go back to the the grazing of, of the moorland here in particular and uh, maybe get you just to expand a little bit on the, the input-output side of it. It's it's something which I'm particularly interested in uh, and a little bit of research I was doing for some, from art, uh, for some articles, which was how much input that you, you need to get for a certain amount of, of output. And we know that there are um, species and plants which do that better or worse than others. So I'd just be interested to know your take with the, the animals that you have here and the research that's being done and, and how that is effective and what is efficient yeah that that's given me a very interesting lead because when i have visitors to glensock i often compare what i believe to be the relative efficiencies of each of our enterprises and just to go back a stage and describe what those enterprises are so on glensock we have in round numbers 350 blackface ewes running on the hill and they're stocked at, let's say, approximately one ewe per hectare. We have 100 red deer hinds, and they're stocked at one hind per two hectares. On the low ground at Glensoch, we have 450 mainly crossbred ewes, but within that number are also a number of blackface ewes that have been drafted from the hill flock. And they are bred to typically Texel or Texel-Charley hybrid tups. And the final enterprise that we have here is the suckler cow. And suckler cow numbers have drifted down over the years, but have stabilised at around 50. And what is of particular interest to me, and also to the science community who've worked with me in recent years, is the relative level of input and output that go into these enterprises. If we start with the hill livestock, and by that I mean the hill blackface ewe and the red deer, and look at the inputs. The inputs that go into the hill, lives, the hill blackface flock are very little, and historically would have been almost next to nothing. Typically, hill, black, hill blackface flocks will receive supplementary feeding only in the few weeks prior to lambing time, or if it's a bad winter, they'll receive some silage, haylage, or in earlier years, hay. But in brief terms, it would be fair to say that the blackface ewe is self-sufficient and will live off her hill environment for 11 months out of 12. If we turn now to the red deer herd, those red deer hinds, will typically survive out on the hill for 12 months out of 12 without any intervention or support from their human keepers. They are even more robust than the blackface ewe. And what makes these hill, life, the, these hill animals, the blackface ewe and the red deer, so self-sufficient is that they are 
in tune with their environment. And in the case of the blackface ewe, she is hefted to her environment. And, and hefting is the, the instinct that a sheep has to utilize a piece of hill. And the territorial rights that she has to that hill. And what that translates as in, in real life is that the, the you will always appear at the same place on the same hill. And when a storm comes in winter, she will know where to go and she'll know how to survive. And she will rear her lamb on that bit of hill and the lamb will acquire the territorial rights from her mother. And one of the disturbing things that's happened in recent years in Scottish hill farming is that a number of these hefted flocks have been dispersed, been taken to market and sold. The entire flock. The entire flock. So the value that's inherent in the hefting is destroyed overnight. And what we as an institute know, having done some scientific research on this, is that to reheft stock will take between six and ten years. And if you say that there are six generations of sheep normally in a sheep flock, um, that, that rings true. It will take an entire generational cycle to get the sheep hefted back onto the ground. And when I came to Glensoch, one of the hefts, the Burney, which is about 200 hectares, had no livestock on it at all. And it was a real challenge to us to put sheep back onto that hill. And it has taken us about 15 years to get to the point where we feel that that flock is performing particularly well. So this is, this is about efficiency of the flock on the that, hill, that's so because a, they have the knowledge. That's about the time that it's taken for the flock to acquire the knowledge, the territorial rights, and to settle down. Because, is this because, hill. just to make it clear for people listening, <coughs> otherwise they would require a lot of human intervention? Yes. Okay. So if you simply parachuted a flock of alien sheep onto our hill they wouldn't know how to use the hill. Instead of dispersing over the hill and utilising the whole of the ground, they would tend to congregate together. So the 120 ewes that live on the Burney would coalesce as one group, whereas what happens now is that the ewes that are on the Burney hill uh, are nicely dispersed and they'll use the whole hill. And it's my job as a land manager to make sure that the whole hill is well managed. And when I'm burning, to come back to the burning point, I'm very careful to make sure that the peripheral ground on the hill is the ground that I burn first. And that serves two purposes. One, it means that the peripheral ground is always attractive to sheep and therefore it encourages dispersal of the sheep. And two, it ensures that the peripheral ground is well burned and the chances of a fire getting out of control in my ground and running onto neighbour's ground is very much reduced. Yeah, I know. I never knew that about the sheep. No, I, I don't. That is a, that was a, it's a school day today for <laughs> me. Is, yeah. I didn't know that about. But it, it, it's fascinating because without that knowledge, without that capture of knowledge about hefting and the flock, that potentially could be lost or certainly be diluted. The knowledge of that for us as as humans. I mean, how how do you take that knowledge and make sure that uh, people know? Because obviously at some point, somebody took a whole flock like you were just describing and sent it to market, and that was lost. That was obviously uh, maybe a, a lack of knowledge there. And, and what often happens next is that this, the new owner of a moorland, who may wish to manage it as a grouse moor, decides that having some sheep up there would be a good idea. Because sheep are animals that you can gather and that you can treat for tick 
for example. So if you're trying to remove ticks from your grouse moor, you can use sheep as the vehicle that will collect the ticks and then you can treat the sheep and the ticks are killed. So it, what we know is that it's very difficult to put the sheep back on once the sheep have been taken off again. And you can put a couple of hundred sheep onto a grouse moor, but they won't disperse and cover the ground in the way that you would wish them to. It takes time to be to like you you like you explained to be it, able to achieve that. It it takes time. So the manager who sold the sheep didn't recognise the long term value that is inherent in the hefting. Even though that was actually set in stone in the Hill Farming Act nineteen forty six. So the land managers who were around in the late forties knew very well that Hill sheep had a particular an inherent value that couldn't be realised in the market. That that value can only be realised if the sheep stay on the hill and they're transferred from one owner to another, mm, yeah, which is it, traditionally what happened. Uh, that's amazing, yeah. The, the value, it was that added value was only added value in that location. That's exactly right. Uh, which, yes. which is very difficult to put a price on unless you're selling the yeah. farm. So as flock managers at Glen Soch, we're very cognizant of the fact that there is real value in the hefting of our sheep on the hill. The only time that we remove sheep from the hill is when they're, essentially their flock life is over, or it's nearly over, and I mentioned that we bring some of our ewes off the hill and graft them into the low ground flock. And because we're always trying to improve the quality of our hill ewe stock, we are focusing quite hard on identifying underperforming ewes, it's much easier to identify the few underperforming ewes in a flock than to identify the few high flyers, because actually most of your ewe flock will be what you would call middle of the road. But if we can take the underperforming ewes out of the flock and take them off the hill, then it means that their offspring will never be selected, can never be selected as replacement ewe stock. If we leave only the strong ewes on the hill, then... I think in time we will have a better hill flock, and that's actually been our experience. How does how does the maybe we could tie this in now with how the hill flock compares to your low ground flock, and and go back to the input energies, output energies, and efficiency of that because I think that's quite 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 interesting, especially now with the background that you've given yeah. us about the, the hefting and the time it takes to achieve that. So so let's look at what our expectation is of a hill ewe, and my expectation is that she will rear one good either ewe or weather lamb. A good ewe lamb will probably be retained as a replacement, and a weather lamb is what we will sell in the market. Um, the blackface is a prolific animal and will typically give us between 1.2 and 1.3 lambs per ewe, and we can manage that extra lamb crop by putting a bit more input into the system. So ewes that are carrying twins will be selected out of the flock pre-lambing, and we can do this by using pregnancy scanning, which is, is a technique that was actually developed by the Hill Farming Research Organization in the 1980s and was pioneered at Glen Soch. So we pregnancy scan our ewes and we apply a bit of supplementary feeding in the direction where we will get a good payback. So there is no point in providing supplementary feeding to a ewe that is only carrying one lamb because she's already well designed to cope with that one lamb in our reasonably well-managed natural environment. But we know that blackface ewes will struggle to rear two lambs 
unless we help them out a bit. Now if we come to the low ground and look at our expectations for a low ground U, our expectation is that the low ground U will nurse two lambs. And in fact, some of the low ground U's are pregnancy scanned with three or even four lambs. And a huge amount of work therefore has to go into low ground, the low ground lambing to ensure that the ewes that had three lambs go out of the shed with two and the few ewes that only had one lamb go out of the shed with two. point I'm making is that there's a lot of cross-fostering done in the low-ground flock to disperse the lamb crop across the number of available mothers. It's a very much more labour-intensive system than the hill blackface flock, but we get a lot more lamb out of it. In terms of efficiency, therefore, we're prepared to put a lot of time, money and resource into the low-ground flock because we get a higher value and more saleable product out. The low-ground flock are typically put in lamb to a Texel or Texel hybrid tup. They'll lamb at the beginning of April and if we get our management right, the lamb will be available to sell at a finished weight of 42 kilos, live weight off grass, let's say by the middle to end of August. And if we're selling a lamb by the end of August, then the lamb will have required no supplementary feeding whatsoever. So we are finishing that lamb off grass within about five months of its birth. And in my mind, that's quite a clever system. Systems that mean that the lamb has to be retained on farm, either on this farm or on another farm, to finish in middle to late winter, incur significant extra feed costs. So I'm very interested in systems that make good use of grass within the grazing season. What I particularly like about sheep systems is that you get a saleable product out within the season of birth. And the same obviously doesn't apply to suckler cows, where the saleable product will come 18 to 20 months later after the birth of the calf, by which time it will have been through at least one winter on supplementary feeding. So the big payback for all the extra input that goes into the low-ground flock is that we get a good level of output. Typically, we will scan the low-ground flock at about 198 to 200%, and that doesn't translate into that level of lamb crop, um, typically we would lose around 10% of the lamb crop between scanning and weaning for a variety of reasons. And this provides me with a useful opportunity to mention that Glensoch is one of six farms which are taking part in SRUC's Live Lambs project. SRUC are very keen to pin down the reasons for those losses between scanning and sale and because we're quite analytical in how we manage our sheep flock and we record very good data, it's proving to be quite easy for me to provide the data and the analysis that SRUC need to answer these questions. So, perhaps I'm moving off topic here, but I'll just mention in passing that a number of lambs don't even make it into the open air, so some of the scanned lamb crop are absorbed in utero. That particularly applies in situations where ewes are malnourished. 
but our nutrition is quite good so we don't lose many lambs in that way. At or around birth, we'll typically lose a small number of lambs. We'll lose a few, but not many, to ailments like joint ill. We'll lose a few to exposure. One or two will be lost to clostridial diseases, but we can cover that base by using vaccination. And typically, as I say, we'll, we will lose less than 10% of our potential lamb crop. So we get very good levels of output at Glensoch, but I return to the point that that output costs us in terms of the input that has to go in. So we've, you've got the the economic standpoint there, and I can I can understand where you where what you're explaining, especially with regard to to the low ground of the the extra input, especially in manpower that's required. But just from a sort of a purely environmental standpoint, how do the two flocks compare in terms of their impact their impact on the land, if you like, and the 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 returning output that they produce? Yes. So the hill flock, which spends most of its time on the hill and is grazed at, say, a U to one U per hectare, um, has, I would say, a low impact on the environment. If you accept that her grazing, the U's grazing of the hill, is helping to deliver the management of that type of landscape. The low-ground flock, on the other hand, are much more dependent on us for their well-being both summer and winter. So in summer, those low-ground ewes are grazing on improved pasture, which is dominated by ryegrass and clover. And that pasture only exists because we plough it up and reseed it, perhaps every seven years. And we apply lime and we apply fertiliser. And we're very careful about how we manage that ground. The low-ground ewe is also dependent on us, on us humans for getting through that long winter. Typically, she'll be fed a diet based on silage from December through January, February, and into March. And then at lambing time, she'll also receive silage or haylage as a supplement while she's housed at lambing time. And it's only after lambing time that the ewe emerges back onto grass, onto that improved pasture. But the area of improved pasture at Glensoch is small compared to the area of the farm as a whole. So... I mentioned earlier Glensoch extends to 1,000 hectares, but the area of improved pasture is about 50 hectares. And let's say that there's another 50 hectares of marginal, old improved reseeded ground that doesn't receive much input nowadays, if any. Um, so the 50 hectares of improved pasture on Glensoch punches far above its weight, and it adds value to the business as a whole. And remember that while the hill ewe is expected to get through the winter more or less on her own without much help from us, sometimes nature plays its hand and we we have to step in with supplementary feeding. So in the way that growing up on a hill farm in the borders, we made large amounts of hay on the expectation that we'd get a bad winter like 1963. Well, we eventually did get one of those bad winters in 1979 and I remember as a boy taking bales of hay on a sledge out to sheep. Um, We still have to take out an insurance policy every year against that eventuality, and it does happen. So as recently as 2010 and again in 2013, we had winters at Glensoch that were hard enough that we had to feed sheep for significant periods of time. 
But when we're feeding blackface ewes on the hill, which I describe as putting them on benefits, we're always quite keen to get them off benefits as quickly as possible because we we don't want to build up a relationship with the sheep where they feel that they're dependent on us and where when they see a quad bike coming, they come running expecting yeah. to be fed. So <clears throat> as soon as that snow begins to melt, the gates are opened and the ewes are encouraged back out onto the hill again. So what is that, uh, that knowledge and uh, relationship between... Uh, the higher ground and the low ground. Tell us about maybe what we should be doing more sort of widespread across uh, Scotland. If we look at this as a, a model example, which you know, which is what Glenn, Glenn Sock is, I, I might be mistaken because my knowledge of, of sheep is uh, clearly not, uh, and, and the history is not as good as yours. But would I be correct in saying that we don't have as many sheep out on the open hills as we did 50 years ago? That's absolutely right. That we could be producing far more sheep meat from the hills than we are. Historically in Scotland we had a situation of overproduction in the sheep sector and the response by government to that was that in the late 60s and early 70s tens if not hundreds of thousands of hectares were taken out of production and planted with trees. Mm-hmm. And as I was growing up in Ettrick in the borders I saw many farms being ploughed and planted. The tide turned against that in the 1980s and things settled down for hill farming, but recently we have lost a number of hill flocks again, and there is renewed pressure to be planting more of our hill ground. Mm -hmm. We've Uh, seen that with recent government incentives. So, uh, as you say, there are government incentives to plant trees, but we also have an interesting dialogue going on between the National Sheep Association and the Forestry Commission, recognising that hill farms are in control of many hundreds and indeed thousands of hectares of potentially plantable land. And we're looking at potential solutions here where, let's say, a typical 1,000 hectare hill farm could give up one or 200 hectares to planting and still be left with a viable farming business. That's more than tinkering tinkering around with forestry, Mm. but it's not completely wrecking the farm as a farming livestock type business. So do, do we know or is there um, research and evidence to say what happened to the environment of these this these hill ground uh, hill grounds where these where there used to be higher densities and now there's either none or much lower densities how has the environment generally speaking reacted to that was it the case that we had sort of overgrazing with sheep. I mean, I'm sure we would have had overgrazing with sheep in some areas. I'm just trying to understand whether there's been, a, sort of, a, and this might be an impossible question to answer, a net positive or net uh, negative impact on the environment as a result of us having less sheep on the hills. I can only speak from personal experience here, and I'm sure there is research to back this up, but my observation is that a hefted hill flock that is not overstocked In our situation, I've mentioned one ewe per hectare. That's a comfortable level of stocking. Provided those sheep are hefted and therefore are using their environment efficiently, they will not overgraze the environment. The worst cases of overgrazing that I've seen are where sheep have been put onto hills where they are not hefted. And while notionally they may have thousands of hectares to range over, in reality they're only ranging over a few hundred hectares. And then you get overgrazing, serious overgrazing. If we manage our hill flocks correctly, we will not get overgrazing. 
I think the overgrazing that you might be thinking of was being talked about a lot in the 1990s, and that was followed by a sea change in the support mechanism for the hill sheep sector. So until 2003, we used to receive a sheep annual premium, and that was paid whether the ewe was a good ewe or a bad ewe. And then after 2003, we moved towards a decoupled support system, and headage payments were removed. And what followed was a removal of sheep, because a lot of ewes had been retained on farm that weren't actually productive. Because how, of the payments. How inefficient was that? Okay. And, and, and we as an institute know that Ruminant livestock generally contribute significantly to methane production and it seems ludicrous that now that we would allow a, a situation to persist where we keep unproductive ruminant females on the farm simply to collect a headage payment. <laughs> yeah, I sincerely hope we it. don't go back to that and, and I don't think we will because as an industry we're now much more focused on the productive potential of individual animals and New technology has allowed us to focus more carefully and be more analytical in our in the management of our herds and flocks. With regard to the deer, I mean, deer are are a, are a wild animal. They are, as you said earlier, we have we have roe deer on the low grounds and on the high grounds, but predominantly red deer on 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 our, the upper regions of of Scotland, the higher regions of Scotland. What do we? What have we learned, or what has been learned here about how we should possibly be using that wild resource? Because it seems to me that, uh, and from a sort of an efficiency standpoint, they can, as long as we keep a check on the numbers and we are harvesting any kind of surplus beyond what would damaging densities, it almost seems like that seems the, the most efficient meat source. And they're tasty as well. And they taste very good. <laughs> Although I do, I am quite partial to lamb, but. Uh, yeah, it, it seems to me that maybe we're not harnessing that as well. Byron, you're be. really asking the wrong person about the the the, the, ecolog the the ecology of managing red deer in the wild. But what I know about is how we manage our red deer on Glensoch. Yeah, okay. Um, and we're producing a farmed venison product, which I think compares well with the wild product in terms of its eating quality, but it's not the same product. Mm -hmm. I may have mentioned earlier about the commoditization of products. But essentially what we've tried to do here is to commoditize venison. And I have to say, I, it's not an approach that I condone. And I think we have to be careful about how we market any of our produce. Um, if we're going to commoditize a product like venison, then we have to be producing enough of it. Scottish government recognise that there is a strong demand for venison and are quite keen to see an increase in the number of deer farmers so that continuity of supply can be guaranteed and venison can appear on the shelves every week of the year. And to win market share in the supermarkets, you need to be able to guarantee supply. Mm. The problem with farmed red deer is that there are too few of them to guarantee supply and calving is a seasonal thing. So the venison tends to come through the system at the same time every year. Um, the wild product is quite different. And I, I, I think it would be wrong for us to try to confuse the wild product with the farm well, product. That's fair enough, the, yeah. the, the wild product should always be marketed and branded as the wild product. Mm -hmm. 
No, that's uh, uh, yeah, it's interesting. A lot, a lot of food, food for thought. If you excuse <laughs> the pun, uh, if we just return to to forestry for a moment, uh, you've you've kind of touched on it, and and you know we're talking about the the increased uh, will to plant more forests. It is often thought, and I know we, we touched on this just uh, briefly uh, prior to, to coming live on the podcast, is often thought that, well, the ground is there, we can plant, why, what stops us planting all of it? And maybe a misunderstanding, certainly from, from the public, and uh, you know, some people would maybe even argue from uh, those people who make decisions for us sitting in government, that it's a little bit more complicated than that. You can't just, uh, with, a, with a, the scroll of a pen, say, trees yeah, here, trees here <laughs> please, because not everything, not, not every location... Uh, necessarily lends itself to the efficient planting of of trees and their survival yeah i i had a visit from a colleague this morning and i walked him out onto the hill and he looked at the hill and remarked that there weren't weren't very many sheep there and in fact there weren't because most of the blackface ewes are in by at the moment for lambing so only a few ewe hogs were out on the hill running in small groups as they do and he said well wouldn't planting that ground be a much more efficient use of the resource? And in some circumstances it might. But I return to the point I made earlier that Glensoch is a thousand hectares and we could plant more of Glensoch than we have and still maintain a viable livestock business. But I think perhaps the point that you're expecting me to make is that of, say, the 500 hectares of hill land lying to the north of the fault. A significant part of that isn't plantable anyway, because it's too high. And it's too wind exposed. Some of it isn't plantable because it's right on the skyline next to the Cairnamount Road, and the environmentalists would hate us to plant it because of the visual immunity problem that that would create. Some of it's not plantable because it's too steep. When you factor out the bits of the hill that are not plantable, then you're left with what in hill farming we know as the mid-hill and and the in-by. Well, the mid-hill is probably your most productive hill ground, and mistakes were made in the past where hill farms were divvied up and the mid-hill was planted, and the high ground, the unplantable ground, was left unplanted to be grazed by sheep, and the low ground was sometimes planted or it Sometimes it was left for sheep grazing. But if you take the mid-hill out, then you've essentially destroyed the possibility of that hill being used by hefty sheep anymore. So the, potentially the viability the val- of the, it. The yeah. viability and the value of that hill has gone. And at a recent meeting that I attended, in fact I spoke at, I talked about the scenario where perhaps of a thousand hectares we'd give up 200. And I said to the foresters who were at that meeting that they would have to take the good, the bad, and the ugly in that 200 hectares, and they couldn't cherry-pick the best bits. So rather than taking the best land out of a farm like Glensoch, we might take part of Glensoch, but it would include some unplantable land, and it would include some rock, and it would include some peat bog and some land that was too steep, (laughs) and it would include some plantable land too. it doesn't it, become it, that enticing when and, <laughs> and then suddenly the forestry investment manager goes actually I'm not that interested no, yeah, anymore. I don't want your land anymore <laughs> yeah but uh, joking apart I think wind is probably one of the biggest stumbling blocks to forestry planting in our yeah, environment wind for for stunting trees and exactly yeah. now I, I've planted about 50 hectares of woods 
in the last seven years, thanks to support through the Scottish Rural Development Programme. And it's been a labour of love to get these trees established, um, and wind rock has been a significant problem. Now, of course, once we get the woods away, then we'll... Woods create shelter, obviously. Yeah, obviously there are there's within, spin-off benefits in the right places. So. Yes, and, and once trees are growing, then they create shelter for other trees. So yeah. it would be, be possible to improve the mix of trees that we have. I guess you see it on the west coast, some of the windiest places you can get on some of the islands, and there isn't a single tree on <laughs> nothing yes. there. Yeah. <laughs> There's a, probably a good reason for that. Yeah. But yeah. The, pi- the pioneer stage in any woodland planting is tricky mm. and takes a lot of time and resource. And the 50 hectares that we've planted have employed a huge amount of manpower. Um, I liken it to gardening on a landscape scale. Yeah. Um, typically, we're planting woods at a scale of, say, six to eight hectares. So relatively, relatively, uh, relatively small. They're relatively small, but they but they fit well with the environment, mm-hmm. and they're better designed than the rectangular shelter belts. That I think I no, that's with. key. I think that's a really important point: is that they're designed well mm-hmm. and more in harmony with yes. the rest of the environment. Yes, the, the, there's a correct scale of planting for any property where the design will be right. And the four to six hectare scale was correct for the marginal land that I was planting. So typically I've planted between the better quality in by managed grass and the heather moorland. And that that belt of ground is quite thin at Glensoch. I liken it to a giant garden hedge, but it's about three to four hundred metres wide in places. So what what is the or what of the future of Glensoch are you able to, to tell us? Is there anything that's... Uh going to be potentially groundbreaking or any any new research that's maybe just started that you've no, no real idea what the the outcome of that is going to be that might sort of change the way we, we view the landscape of how we should be using it? Yes, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, the cycle of research that's just finished included some very interesting work on methane production from ruminant livestock. But the cycle of work that we're in now seems to be much more focused on soil research, which is interesting up to a point, but is perhaps of less relevance to hill farmers um, than the type of work that we've done in the past. I'm sorry I'm not really in a position to speak about this, because the, the situation we're in just now is that high profile systems type projects involving large numbers of live or farmed animals are you would say thin on the ground mm. that that type of research is not being well funded at the moment i mean that in itself is is interesting from 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 my point of view i guess the the question would be i, I wonder why but uh, maybe it's just where where the focus lies at any point in time at one point in the past it it was and and, and now it's not but, uh, no, we, we also we share our Scottish government research remit with organisations like SRUC, so we may work in collaboration with SRUC on certain projects, but they'll take the lead. So mm-hmm. our our SRUC brethren are much more focused on, for example, hill sheep systems, and it would be very interesting, and and I would grasp the opportunity to to replicate their work here at Glensaw should that ever arise. How many people do you have working here? So I, I have a shepherd and two stockmen 
one of whom is primarily devoted to looking after the red deer herd. And I also have a tractorman who spends quite a bit of his time helping me with what I call estate management work, for example, maintaining and um, working in the woods mm-hmm. and helping me with property maintenance. But I, I am well endowed with staff and they're a capable team. Um, Glensoch is not a typical farm, as you'll realise, because a lot of the activity here is not typical farming activity. So I have more staff than I would have if I was managing Glensoch as a commercial unit. Yeah. But but you need that extra help because of the extra bits of research and stuff that's going on because it's not a typical farm. The the jobs that we're asked to do and to maintain capacity for taking on work that tends to come out of the blue. And an example of that would be that about a year ago I was asked to help set up an experiment that was investigating the effect of biting midges on red deer and sheep. And I was very sceptical about whether or not we could make this work. But the design of the experiment required us to set up deer handling pens within a tent. And deer, tame deer, were enticed into this tent every night, kept there for a certain number of hours. And the midges came in and attacked the deer. And then the deer were allowed to go and the residual midges were hoovered up and taken away for analysis. And I said, no, that'll never work. But actually we set it up and we did this for CEH, the Centre for Ecology and Hydrology, and it was one of the most successful mini-experiments we'd ever run. Because we had decided that it would be useful for us to keep a few tame deer to use in these sort of experiments, we had the animals on hand. Yeah. And while we were setting up the pens and the tents, the tame deer were just wandering in and investigating. Seeing what you're doing. Sniffing and perhaps getting the odd cattle cob to (laughs) keep them happy. So when it came to bringing the deer in on a nightly basis, actually that wasn't any problem at all. It was just you being eaten alive by midges that was probably the The, problem. (laughs) And and the weather was suitably midgy. (laughs) And the CEH staff hoovered up a good quantity of these midges and they thought that was a fantastic result so I'm not here to question the rationale of the science um, do, 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 I, what I, were they I'm, trying to do we know what they were trying to find or can you tell us what well they, they were trying to they, find they, they explained to me that there are around 50 species of biting midges okay. we tend to think of midges as those annoying things that bite us <laughs> yeah, when yeah. we're on holiday in sky but uh, the, of those 50 species of midges which ones were causing annoyance and irritation to the deer and to the sheep and which yeah. ones were So not all midges are the same? Not all midges not. are those annoying biting ones apparently. Never knew there that. They, go. they all look the same to me. Maybe I need to look in slightly more detail. <laughs> I, I would like to highlight the point that we're always very open to collaboration and as an institute we collaborate with many other academic and research organisations worldwide and that reflects very much the way the science community works. So scientists will attach themselves to an institute that best reflects their work and their interests, but they will work across other organisations and institutes as it suits them and the, as it suits the, the nature of their work and where the funding's coming from. I, did an, I, I hosted another collaborative project that was focused on heather, moorland management, and 
it was run by a group of Dutch scientists, and the Dutch scientists were looking at false colour imagery of the moorland pre and post burning, and they set up within a, a plot that they had asked me to burn a whole lot of recording instruments, and then at the appointed moment I'd set fire to the plot and I'd burn it. While the plot was burning, they had a drone up in the sky taking um, footage of the fire as it progressed across the plot. And again, that was a very successfully organised and executed project, and they left Glensoch with fantastic results. And I, that, as I mentioned a few moments ago, I'm not here to question the rationale of the work. I, but I, you're I'm, helping facilitate I'm, the... I'm here to facilitate it, and if they come to me with an idea that sounds wacky at first, I, I might sit down around this table and talk through the design and how we're going to execute it, and as a result of that discussion, very often the design changes a bit, but we go out into the field and we run it, and hopefully it works, and they leave Glensoch with fantastic results. They're happy and I'm happy. And the Institute's happy because the feedback that the Institute gets is that Glensoch served the purposes well and and the results were great. Hmm. And, uh, and that, that, that fans out and you might very well get and used the, again by somebody and else. And our reputations remain intact. Yeah. <laughs> you talked earlier on about um, sheep being used as uh, basically tick mops. A lot of people know about that. Yes. Um, has anything gone on here for ticks, or have you noticed tick numbers? This is a question we get all the time yes. uh, with the warmer winters and increasing of ticks. So when I was a small boy growing up in the borders, ticks were in our consciousness, and we were dipping our sheep as a means of getting rid of the ticks. And I think in the early 1970s, the dips were so effective that the ticks more or less disappeared. And and growing up, my father would say that we don't get ticks anymore. Fantastic. Well, the reason was that we'd poisoned the ticks out of existence, but we'd probably poisoned a lot of other things at the same time. Um, the ticks made a resurgence probably in the 80s or early 90s, and they're very much back now. And farms like ours that are on the edge of the range of the red deer are always a bit at the mercy from ticks that are being brought in from outside. So we have to bear that in mind. Um, how do we control ticks? Well, we know that they're out there. Um, we can't break the life cycle of the tick to the extent that we can render them extinct on Glensoch. So we will treat our sheep, I'm thinking about three times during the season, so the first treatment that goes on is that the young lambs, the black-faced lambs that are just about to go to the hill now at the end of April, will not go to the hill until they're old enough to receive a spot-on treatment. That's a synthetic pyrethroid. And those young lambs will go to the hill with a, a 5 mil drop of synthetic pyrethroid dropped onto their skin, and that will keep them going until early summer. And then the... The, the tick then tends not to be very active in the middle part of the summer when hopefully the weather will be warm, but the tick recovers and appears again in late summer and into the autumn and sheep will be treated again. So typically, for example, the cast ewes that will be put away out onto the hill for a period after weaning, which is a end of July usually, they'll also receive a spot-on treatment. Um, 
So those synthetic pyrethroids are being applied at strategic times to keep the tick population under control. And our red deer, they're at the mercy of ticks all yeah. the time. Um, the red deer hinds will typically receive only one spot on treatment during the year. Um, that's not nearly enough to keep the ticks at bay. But the, the, the red deer both harbour ticks and cope with ticks. It's I guess that in the wild the red deer are having to live with ticks yeah, all the time. Deal with it. And what would be, uh, have you seen what the impact would be on the sheep and condition if the tick burden gets too high or if you don't treat? We've had unexpected outbreaks of ticks in the past and the, the impact on mature sheep in my experience is limited but the impact on lambs is severe. So once within our agroforestry plots we had an outbreak of tick and we had no idea that we had ticks there and what we reckoned was that deer had been wintering in the agroforestry plots over the, in the winter time and had left the ticks behind. So we had young crossbred lambs being disabled by ticks. When the ticks attach then they will cause, occasionally cause blood poisoning and a condition called tick pyemia. That can lead to lameness and or death of the lamb. And that's what rang the alarm bell that we had a tick problem. Yeah, as, as Daryl said, ticks are a, a big problem. It's a topic that comes up a, a lot when we're asked questions. And uh, I, I don't know if there's actually really any concerted effort to try and do anything about the population of tick, although I know that there is certainly research going on at uh, one of the English universities on trying to find ways to treat Lyme's disease and, and various other diseases that you can pick up from tick. But uh, it, is, it is a serious problem. I don't think it's a realistic prospect to... To control. Ever, well, we can control them and we can mitigate their effects, but we will not get rid of tick. Mm. And knowing about the variety and types of ticks that appear on farms, for example, in Africa... I think we're getting off quite lightly. We've only yeah, got one. Very, very true, We've actually. only got one species, and they're quite small. But I was, not golf ball I, size. I was very upset when I got bitten about two weeks ago. Now in Inverness, I wasn't expected to. I right. had a nice tick on my arm. I was hoping to at least well, make be, it till May. Make it till. The, I was yeah, once camping anyway. in Africa, and there was a shower of rain. And after the rain went off, I saw these ticks marching towards my tent, and they were about the size of my thumbnail. <laughs> <laughs> They are, yeah. It's frightening. If 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 anyone hasn't seen the ticks over in there, in Africa, it's they're like ticks on steroids. Like I said, <laughs> yeah. yeah. But actually, since since we mention Africa, uh, mention Africa, and because we're probably going to wrap up sitting around the table before we have uh, the chance to walk outside and do a bit yeah. of talking, which is not something we normally and get. Stop to do. raining. Which oh, has is it stopped nice. raining? Yeah, good. Yeah. Is it? Uh, uh, th this strange quirk of the world being very small is that you actually met our sorry your brother actually met our father some years ago and maybe you can just recount that story because it's a story that we heard as a little kid and now I'm hearing literally 20 years later from you <laughs> this is one that I qu quite like telling and around about 1993 my brother went out to Zimbabwe to help manage a cattle station and the cattle station was near the town of Plumtree, and my brother had a Kawasaki 125 as his runabout to get in and out of town and to go to the market. And I think one day he was on the 125 and possibly heading to Francistown, which is on the border with Botswana. He used to go there to do his shopping, 
And he was on his way back and he met a white guy at the roadside who'd broken down. His Toyota pickup had broken down. So as you do in Africa, you don't drive past. You, you stop and ask if there's anything that you can do to help. So my brother, whose name is James or Jim to his friends, um, picked this guy up and took him to the nearest town to get spares for the pickup. But I think the, there was a bit more to the story than that, that they either couldn't get the spares there and then or they decided they'd have a few beers on the way. So <laughs> I, th- I think they made a night of it in the end. So about a year or two later, I was introduced to um, my friend's new neighbour and he, he said, this is Ralph from Rhodesia. <laughs> and Ralph looked at me and said, you look very familiar. You're, you're just like a guy I met when I was out in Africa. And he told me the story about the breakdown at the side of the road. <laughs> and I said, well, Ralph, was it a clapped out Kawasaki 125? And he said, yes, it was. How did you know that? And I said, well, that was my brother that you met. <laughs> It's, it's just crazy, because if you think that uh, where you are here and where we're recording this podcast is not 15 miles from where my parents now live, and it was your brother that my, my dad met all those years ago, it's just a, a ridiculously small world. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you about topics which are on the limit of, of my knowledge. Uh, I'm more in the hunting fishing world have an interest in, in the agricultural side because I spend a lot of time on farms mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of my friends are farmers but I think there's been some insights there that a lot of people won't have known and it's certainly been a school day for me and there'll be a lot of people that live around the area that listen to this show that probably didn't even know this was here probably not oh. people who go over Kernamount <laughs> all the time yeah. and drive right past the doorstep here and don't realize the research is going on it's been a pleasure talking to you yeah, well, I'm looking forward to have a, having a quick walk outside and have a have a have a, a look at a few things out there. Be delighted to show you around. So you've taken us out on the hill, which is a rare treat for us in the podcast. Normally, sat in the office. Where are we? What are we looking at? Okay, so we've just entered what we call the hard park, and it's called that for a reason. It's not a field that I'd want to plough very often, but it does grow quite good grass, and it's that sort of good robust long-term lay that sheep particularly thrive on and at the moment you can see a, quite a large number of blackface ewes some with newborn lambs at foot so that for now is our lambing park so we're actually going to leave those sheep in peace we're going to head up the path through an area of newly planted woodland and out onto the hill and the point that I always like to make here is How quickly you leave our productive managed grassland, which lies in the heart of the farm, and really within only a few minutes we're out onto the heather moorland. Yeah, I mean, it's it's literally a couple of hundred metres when the the landscape's changing. That's right. And and as a manager, I've chosen to put some trees into that narrow uh, couple of hundred metres. And earlier I was talking about the garden hedge effect. Mm. Um, and this is what you were referring to this is it and, so, uh, and, and, and this to me is much more than a garden hedge this is a piece of well designed woodland what you can see here are some trees that were planted in 2012 and I got another chance to go back to the rural development programme in 2015 and I wasn't happy with the design of this woodland so I've actually extended the 2012 planting 
By taking in another area of bank and to improve the design, I've taken a corner off the hard park as well. I'm absolutely delighted with the result. So, so how what what do you see as the future of this this planting that I'm looking here? Obviously, it's uh, there's a deer fence and a stock fence, so nothing can get in there to protect the young trees as they're growing. But is this something that would be opened up a, as shelter for livestock and and wild animals at some point in the future? Yes, I think it's it, it's almost inevitable that the deer fence will have a life and that it'll be torn down, and that within the life of the deer fence, the young trees will have reached a point where they're no longer at any danger from browsing. So the deer fence will come down and then roe deer will be able to get access to the wood and will probably thrive there. Um, red deer, possibly, but I hope not because mm-hmm. we're really out with the natural range of the red deer and that's a destructive herbivore that I wouldn't welcome in the low ground part of the farm. And But that's where your sort of controls, checks and balances would come in? That's absolutely right. Yes. Um, we occasionally have a roe deer problem in our managed plantations and um, subject to the provisions of the Wildlife and Natural Environment Act, we either usher them out or occasionally have to shoot them. Mm-hmm. But that is all part of being part of managing the landscape. Yes. I, I, it's regrettable how destructive roe deer are. It's a for, lot of people for, wouldn't expect it if you their, don't know them. For, <laughs> for their, their small size. <laughs> I had a roe deer in a plantation recently, a, a buck in fact, and he had to go. Mm. And he'd been in there all winter, gone unnoticed, and had done a lot of damage. Uh, I wouldn't grudge them the grass, but they seem to prefer the trees to browse on. They must taste better, I think. Yeah. So we're going to wander over, are we? Yes. This path's a bit rough in places, and you also see some old rabbit burrows. And when I came to Glensock in 2001, the place was alive with rabbits. And about 2007, we took on a stockman called Owen Main, and Owen had been a gamekeeper in a previous job. And I asked Owen to tackle the rabbits, which he set about doing. And I think, luckily, we had a couple of hard winters around 2010-2011, and a combination of Owen's efforts and the hard winters pretty much did for the rabbits. I've heard uh, farming friends of mine, especially um, some guys who are sheep farmers, talk about how how much grazing rabbits can take, and it seems hard to believe with you know such a small little animal, even in the numbers that they are, that they would physically notice it um, in competition with their sheep. But it very much is the case when you have very high densities. Isn't well, it? we had tens of thousands of rabbits here, and they took a huge amount of grass, but. The other problem with rabbits is that they also spoil the grass. So in the way that any grass that's overgrazed by herbivores will be dirty and covered in waste, rabbit-grazed grass is no different. A lot of people wouldn't consider that. (laughs) We also thought that getting rid of the rabbits would be panacea for all ills and that the rabbits were responsible for transmitting diseases like Yoni's disease. Yeah. Well, sadly, we got rid of the rabbits, but we've still got Yoni's disease. And what um, what kind of trees are we looking at here? We're just on the left-hand side here, but this is the, the, the newer bit of planting you're referring to. Yes. So these trees were planted in uh, only a couple of months ago. They're dominated by pine, but you'll also see some juniper and you'll see some aspen. And while it's a pine wood, 
any new planting has to contain a, an element of diversity. And to tick the boxes in the Forest Commission scheme, it was necessary to include some broadleaves. So aspen is a species that associates quite well with pine. I can't believe I'm getting out of breath. <laughs> I'm out of breath too, but I'm going to put it down to the fact we're talking and too walking. Much, <laughs> too much talking and walking. So here we have an aspen, and we've planted this on the edge of one of the blocks of pine, and it's just bursting into bud. So quite pleasing, very pleased with this. You'll notice that the, the planting spots have all been sprayed and caned. And we set the canes up last autumn and sprayed the grass before the before the end of the season while it was still green. And it died off over the winter, so this should give the trees a good head start. Yeah, absolutely. It's so you're doing this with this preparation six months before planting. That's right. So in anticipation of planting we've done the ground prep. What I can also see here is a cluster of dock and seedlings, so we know that we've got weed problems down the road, but tackle that when they we'll, come up. We'll tackle that when the problem arises. It's been a very dry spring and therefore there was always the risk that the trees were going to be droughted out but a bit of rain recently seems to have rescued the situation. Yeah everything just seems to be coming out now. It's been a very well with the exception of a few days in the last week it's been a very warm start yeah. to the year. Just reached the happy point here where all of the tidying up has been done and all of the internal fences have now been removed, including a whole lot of rabbit netting. I'm very particular about about how I leave a site and essentially I want all the metal and plastic waste out of the site. And this is it set up for the long term. So all you can see here now is some scrap fencing timber. It's all been demetalled and it will be allowed to lie there and rot. So now we're heading along what was, uh, how many years ago did you say that this, um, th these trees were planted? Yeah, we're now passing through the part of the plantation that was planted in 2012. And to my right, there is a block of pine that was also planted in 2012, but contains cultivars of pine from all over Scotland. And this is, if you like, a, it, it's a replicate of a plant collection that the James Hutton Institute is curating for the Scottish Government and it, as I mentioned it contains cultivars from all over Scotland so we've got examples from um, places on the west coast like Noydart, um, more locally Glen Tanner, provenances from Easter Ross, they're all up there. So what we should probably say for those people who are, who are listening and don't watch the bit of video on the YouTube is this is native pine we're talking about. Absolutely, yes. So the native pine is embedded in a matrix of commercial pine. Commercial pine is what we're standing beside here at the moment. Now we've not come more than a few hundred metres up from the, the grass field where uh, we were walking amongst uh, walking amongst the lambs and we are almost on the edge of of uh, what would be the start of heathermore and I can see uh, a fairly fresh uh, patch of burnt heather as you were, you were explaining earlier. That's right. So last year in October we had a visit from Rosanna Cunningham who is the Scottish Environment Minister and we brought Rosanna and the other guests who were all part members of the Moorland Forum 
to this site and we thought that it would make them feel more at home if we did a little bit of burning before they arrived. So that's the history of that particular <laughs> fire. I particularly like this part of Glen Sock because it's such an it's a micro environment that contains woodland, little boggy lochs, small hills and deep valleys. And a rather lone tree atop the hill. Yes, I don't know how that one survived. What I do know is that the pine and larch to my right here survived emergency felling that was carried out during the First World War. So this is a plantation that was effectively raided during the First World War, and a lot of woodland was felled at that time. And there was no obligation on landowners to restock. Huh. And therefore... The land remained unplanted for almost the next hundred years. But because it's had a pine crop before, it's growing a fantastic crop of pine again. And my science colleagues would say that that's no surprise, because in fact there is almost like a microbial memory in the soil. And the, the microbial community that suits pine and associates with pine it's still present in the soil, so the pine's getting away to quite a good start. Yeah, it really is. And it's amazing, I, I, travelling around Scotland, fishing and hunting and uh, visiting places as I do, you can quite often see where things have been planted in the wrong place. Yes. If, you, if you're going past year after year, and they just they just never seem to get away. Yeah. It doesn't matter what year you go past, they all seem to be the same size. Yeah. I suppose that's just an example of uh, not necessarily uh, picking the correct locations to plant certain species. So the old trees that stand here, I'm guessing, were not fit to fell in 1917 when the rest of the wood was taken. Hmm. And therefore they survived. And they now make quite a nice wind-firm edge to the new plantation. Absolutely, yeah. Okay, which way will we head, guys? Uh, we head, head round the, the we'll, lower we'll, slope, we'll, I think. We'll, we'll go round the hill. We'll, we'll get a good, view from, a good view from round here. We can... We might go one way and back the other. So where where are we looking out over to now, we're, in we're, the distance? In the distance we're looking over onto Arnbarrow Hill, which is part of Fetter Cairn Estate. Which would largely be used for sport, sporting purposes? Yes, so Arnbarrow, the, the hill land there is, um, it, it's managed for grouse. And in the middle distance, in the foreground rather, we've got our agroforestry plots. And that's a series of three replicates of trees that were planted in the 1980s. Is it? This is what I'm looking at in the middle here? That's it. That's part of a systems experiment that was set up in the dying days of the Hill Farming Research Organisation. And they were trying to develop a system where farmers could grow timber and continue to graze sheep. So the trees are planted at quite wide spacing and they were planted with individual protection and sheep continued to graze that ground as the experiment was run in the 1990s and continue to graze it to this day. And what's happened in the intervening years is that the grass understory within the tree plots has largely disappeared. But the sheep still go in and out of the woodland and use it for shelter. So what, what was there any um, any conclusion to that? Was it designed to be a, a commercial forestry plantation for purposes of felling at the end of its lifespan? 
Sadly not. No. I think one of the conclusions was that in the early years and during the establishment phase of the trees, agricultural productivity would actually go up. But we know that that was only achieved by quite a large input of labour. Okay. And whereas I plant trees at a density of two and a half thousand per hectare, the trees in the agroforestry plots are planted at 400 per hectare. And I still feel that it's probably better on this scale of management to be planting larger areas at higher density. Yeah, yeah, I'm looking down onto one of the one of the little blocks that you're talking about and even though I mean we must be I don't know maybe a thousand meters away you can see that it's pretty much bare underneath yes so that's what what you're looking at is sycamore planted at 400 trees per hectare but in front of that sycamore is a sycamore plot planted at 100 trees per hectare big difference and you see that while there is still grass under those trees the trees are heavily branched so it's a very nice diverse sheltered environment and the sheep clearly like grazing there and I like grazing sheep there because it, there are ample shelter opportunities. We've had some very rough weather in the last few days that is exactly the sort of place that I like to have to put sheep during rough weather um, but the timber's rubbish <laughs> to be blunt um, growing good timber trees really requires them to be planted at high densities if you plant them at low densities, you'll get a lot of branch wood. Which is what we're seeing in front of us huge, here. Huge amount of branch wood. So the, the balance between the two is a very hard one to, to find where you can get yes. uh, efficient use of, of grazing I, and, I, I, and I think, timber. I think what all foresters know is that you have to plant trees at a high density and then thin them to a low density mm-hmm. as they reach maturity. That's what we've done in compartment two, which we see to the left, which is a mixture of pine and larch. And that's another site that we know was lost to wartime felling. We have photographs of that both before it was felled and after it was felled, sometime in the 1920s. It's this most incredible valley here. I've never stood looking back down uh, towards the the, the ford and and basically what is the start of the the Kennemount Road, looking back down this valley. It's uh, very marked. We know it as the Slocht, and it's actually a glacial meltwater channel. Ah. Which is about 150 meters deep. It's about a good 400 feet deep. Yeah, it's quite a feature. So we were talking about heather burning. I think we'll go to one of my recent fires. Yeah, we can do that. Let's follow this path. I think I can almost smell it. Actually, you can. Yeah. Think of a peaty whiskey. Yeah, yeah, it's exactly what it's because like. Because it's been raining and. Yeah. That's bringing the smell out. Oh, just yeah. cut down here. My nose was not lying to me. We're following a strong green path here, and that made a very useful fire break on the day of the fire. I haven't been back here since the fire. What we're looking at is pretty much scorched earth. Yeah. Um, a very deep burn. But a piece of ground that hadn't been burned, I'm guessing, in about 30 years and was being largely ignored by the sheep. And I spotted this from a distance and I thought, I need to have a fire there. And I waited for a long time until the wind was in a safe direction. Well, sort of safe direction because I had a difficult time burning this. But got it in the end and it's made a 
a very satisfactory job. And while it's completely black at the moment, I know that by the end of the summer there'll be the odd seedling and by next summer there'll be a rash of seedlings all over the whole site. You, you can understand why it's hard if you don't... Um, if you haven't been fortunate enough to, to gain the knowledge of of, a pro, of the process, why, if you were standing right where we're standing right now, looking down at this uh, charcoal black ground, which essentially looks dead, why you would think that, how, how, can, how can this be good? Yes. But I, it's, uh, it's understanding the process. But if we turn our heads up the hill, we look at a site that was probably burned about eight to ten years ago, and it's now completely green and it's growing back in, in fact it's long ago grown back in, contains a mixture of vaccinium, which is just coming into flower, and different types of heather, so that mainly ling, coluna vulgaris, but also some bell heather as well, um, and some grass, and why not? Nature likes diversity, sheep like diversity, we like diversity. What we burned out below us here was almost 100% Coluna vulgaris and it was big, heavy, rank and flopped over and was being largely ignored by the sheep so it had to go and what we've been careful to do is not to burn the whole hillside Mm. so we've used this green sheep's footpath as a fire break and that worked quite effectively I once brought a group of students along here and I had a a student suffering from vertigo (laughs) Looking down, it is fairly steep actually It's dramatically steep and Really, we wouldn't normally burn ground as steep as this, and I've been careful not to burn too wide a strip. Can you see the terraces that have appeared from from the burned ground? And what that's telling me is that sheep actually have grazed this in the past and have created these terraces. These little steps all the way down the hill, yeah. But the biggest terrace, of course, is the path that we're on. That useful fire break that I described. Uh, And the whole hillside is intersected by these terrace footpaths the one thing I, I didn't ask you about when we were back around the table discussing uh, discussing Glen Soch was any kind of predator control that you would do for uh, for sheep, most people will, will think if they think of conflicts with, with sheep farmers it would be foxes yeah. so what kind of predator control do you use here as so, part of your management yes we do control foxes um, and we do that in collaboration with our, with the sporting estates to our north and west. Um, and the fox is a resourceful creature, and as much as we control them, the population will recover. And I don't think the fox population's in any danger at all. We also control corvids, mainly carrion crows. And from an agricultural standpoint, the the reason for you wanting to, to control corvids? Well, corvids have a reputation for causing bloody injuries to lambs, pecking out the eyes of ewes, pecking out the tongues of lambs. We've seen all of this happening. And therefore we seek to destroy them. Again, they're very resourceful. So the point I'm making is that we're controlling the population. We're not... Eradicating it. We don't think that we, there's any danger that we're going to eradicate the corvid population. No. We I, think, also, I think history has, show, history has shown that. There's been a lot of control over a lot of years, and it, yeah. it doesn't seem to have made, to the best of my knowledge, much of a difference to the population. I think that's right. Yeah. The, 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 the population will bounce back. Yeah. 
We also know that ground-nesting birds will benefit from the control of these predators, foxes and corvids. Yeah. I think it's probably underestimated maybe by the general public how much damage uh, corvids can do to ground nesting well not yes. just ground nesting birds but particularly ground nesting birds but even your even your garden birds that enjoy nesting in your hedgerows one of the issues in the upland environment is loss of biodiversity and the institute the james hutton institute has been tasked with investigating that loss we have an ongoing experiment at the moment um, looking at predation and on my suggestion we actually put out some dummy nests last spring containing eggs and we set up camera traps to see what actually came and took the eggs and of course corvids were number one Mm -hmm. and we put some wire mesh exclosures over some of the nests and the corvids were sitting huffily on top of the wire mesh trying to get (laughs) trying to work out how they could get (laughs) the eggs and they're very it's a very intelligent birds oh yes as I was saying, I, I've always seen this as a landscape in miniature and found it very attractive. It, it is like that. We've, we've just kind of come through nestled between the two sides of heather here with a, a bit of a sort of a flat bottom, which is much more grassy than the sides. And I, obviously I can see here that you must be uh, using this for, for grazing of the, the, the head of cattle that you have at some point during the year. Yes, so you've picked up on the fact that the cows were out here last autumn. So after the calves were weaned in the autumn, the cows were put out onto the hill for a few weeks. And they're pretty resourceful creatures, so they get into all... They're always on the search for better grazing. And they've been right up here at the Loch Hills. But I think you would agree with me, it's really sheep grazing, not cow grazing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how has the... Or have you been involved in any um, any testing with regard to the species of of cows and their impact or ability to to gain the most from terrain like this. So the experiment that I talked about where we were looking at the performance of the hardy native breed, which Mm. was the ling and the supposedly soft um, continental cross, was done on a bit of hill ground very like this, just about 500 metres that way. And the hypothesis was that the hardy native cows would graze for longer and tolerate the poor weather more and also use the shelter more intelligently Hmm. and I think I mentioned that the results were that were recorded over a very benign season so the system wasn't really tested hard enough by severe enough weather would uh, cattle, generally speaking, in terms of their impact on ground like this, is it more noticeable than with sheep? Oh yes. C- cows will destroy these paths, for example. If you want a path grubbed up and, and, and broken up, then cows will do the job for you. Mm-hmm. Um, sheep tend to tread softer. Yeah. I know that, um, and I, I can't remember for the life of me where it is now, but the, there has been some examples of utilising cows, I think particularly um, highland cows, which are a little bit a little bit um, softer on the ground, but as part of their reforestation processes yes. for actually helping sort of till over the ground That's and getting right. seeds in. So if I wanted to plant this ground, then I would be encouraging the cows to make as much mess as possible. Mm. And in land that has been poached by animals, there is a much greater chance of getting natural regeneration. In land that we have poached, 
even by artificial means in our forestry plantations, you see good regeneration of pine and larch in particular, and that's to be welcomed. And is that that's just the turnover of that Turn, top turning over soil. of the ground? Um, the other effect that grazing cattle are known to have is that bracken, which you can see behind you there, well, they'll not control the bracken, but they will definitely help to prevent its spread. Okay. But actually, the same goes for any grazing livestock, and, and sheep have a measurable effect too. Um, if we took all the grazing livestock away, that bracken would leap away, and it would rapidly um, thicken out, and it would spread. In a bracken clump, animals particularly will break into the edge of the clump and damage the stems on the edge of the clump and prevent the clump from thickening out too much. So while they won't prevent the, they, they won't get rid of the bracken, they will prevent the clump from spreading. How much of a how much of an issue is bracken for you here? I know in some places it's uh, you know it's a it's a measurable concern where, where it's continually yeah. being sprayed and treated and trying to get on top of it. Bracken's only an issue for me in land that is not being grazed by animals. The land that's being grazed has bracken, but the bracken isn't increasing to any measurable extent. In land that I've taken out of grazing for forestry planting, the bracken immediately gets a head start. Hmm. And I control that using a chemical called Azulux, which is licensed now for use in forestry only, and only during the summer season. The spraying season lasts for about a month from mid-July to mid-August. And the issue with bracken is that it basically stifles the growth of anything else? Uh, bracken effectively mops up all the light that is going. And once it dies off at the end of the season, it collapses. And if there are young trees underneath that collapsed bracken canopy, that's usually the end of them. Yeah. Pine can usually get through, can usually get away in bracken, provided the bracken isn't too thick. So, two options for controlling bracken in a newly planted woodland. One is spraying and the other is simply cutting. If you cut the bracken for two or three seasons, usually that's enough to get the trees away. And cutting has the same effect as um, trampling by livestock. It damages the plants and deprives them of a bit of energy. Has there um, ever been discussion or thought to um, utilising other species, other species, maybe more exotic species, for any kind of purpose yeah, or reason? Good question. Actually, and this links nicely with the discussion we've just had about the bracken, that goats are very unfussy about what they will eat. And we did an experiment where we fenced plots, quite large plots of bracken, and populated them with goats to see whether or not the goats would eat the bracken and also whether or not the bracken had any toxic effect on the goats. Mm. And I think my recollection is that the goats would eat the bracken but only if they were stressed enough and uh. that possibly the bracken didn't have very much effect on them but it happened a long time ago. That's you you, you mentioned that. novel animals. I, I, we, we, I was thinking, we, for example, I know down on near St. Cyrus, which is obviously a completely different <laughs> terrain to this, but there was an ostrich farm there at one yeah. point. We, we once had llamas here, and the thinking then was that perhaps 
novel ruminants could be introduced into the Scottish agricultural system which would give farmers different opportunities for producing livestock products but the llamas were so uh, as my children would say fierce <laughs> that, that it was decided not to continue with that work and that they weren't suited to being farmed in Scotland. So that was that mainly due to uh, the handling aspect rather they were, than... They were very aggressive <laughs> and, and difficult to handle. But going back to goats, well, there's nothing really novel about goats in Scotland because if we go back a few hundred years, then I suspect there were more goats in Scotland than sheep, yeah. being a useful dual-purpose animal that would have been milked. So why have we moved away from goats? I mean, goat meat is not something you really see, but, you know, goat cheese and yeah. there are other byproducts of goats that we do see in the supermarkets. There, there was a huge interest in goats in the 80s and 90s because... They produce very valuable fibre, and it was thought that goats might have a chance of a revival simply because of the value of their fibre. But as you say, while goat meat is perfectly nice to eat, there's not a developed market for it in the UK. No. It might be an area for development. Well, the, the Macaulay Institute did a lot of work on goats, particularly in the field of fibre. In fact, they were also busy working on on fibre from sheep and breeding sheep that produced fibre of high quality. I think sadly the market, while it will pay a premium for Angora, fibre was not prepared to pay a premium for particularly high quality sheep wool. How important for you is the wool component of of your sheep stock? It's very unimportant sadly. Just the just the value of it is just the, makes it unimportant. The check for the wool comes to let's say, in round numbers, two and a half thousand pounds. Wow, that's a fraction of what we get for the sale of the lamb crop. Wow, and obviously shearing the wool costs quite a bit of time and money. It hasn't always been like that. So what is what has changed? That's right. Um, what's changed is that the relative value of wool in the economy has gone down and probably been going down for the last hundred years or more. And the reason for that would be that there have been many alternatives introduced. I suppose the first alternative that came in was cotton. And that was quickly succeeded by a whole range of man-made products. Yeah, of course. The synthetic fibres available yeah. now are probably in more more garments than natural fibres. Oh, definitely, yeah. I think <laughs> woolen garments are seen as being a bit abnormal now. I love a good woolen garment myself. Well, so, <laughs> so do I, but I bet the wool in it came from Australia. You're probably right. The wool certainly didn't come from those blackies over there. That would be far too scratchy. So I think we're going to head down to the lockside now. Yeah. We've got one yeah. final thing to look at, which is of... Uh, yeah. Well, very different to the everything else we've been talking about, actually. Excellent. So we are, we are just currently walking along the water's edge here of uh, Loch Sock itself, which, uh, as I was saying earlier in the interviews, I spent a lot of time up here as a, as a kid fishing for trout with uh, my local fishing club, Brecon Angling Club. But we're walking over to... Well, I, I don't know, I'm assuming... Are we heading to this red door that I see? We're heading to the red door, okay, which now, is our pump house. Now, I walked past this red door many, many, many times over many years, and I could hear the clonk, clonk, clonk of a pump in there. Often wondered what its purpose was, but now I'm about to find out something very interesting, because there's a, there's a good story to this, I believe. 
<laughs> That's right. So the story goes back to 1945, when Glensoch was in its infancy as a research station, and the water supply, I guess, was inadequate for the needs of the farming operation, and there was no mains supply at that time. The public mains didn't come to Glensoch until 1963. So there was quite a bold project to install what's known as a hydram, and the hydram takes the water from the spring up on the bank. You can see the... I can see the, the outflow, yeah. That's the overflow from the header tank. The water in the header tank drives the hydram. Once I open the door, I'll explain, or I'll try to explain how it works, because you need a bit of a knowledge of physics to really understand this. Oh, I'm going to be pulling back to high school days now. It's sounding a lot more sympathetic than when I remember how it sounded. It was probably on its last legs. So we replumbed this in 2002, and it's pretty much worked ever since. So we're just stepping into the pump house. Yeah, hence the echo. And I'm just going to have a look at the hydram and see that everything's okay with it. So what you can see here is the wastewater. And behind that, behind the body of the pump, is the drive pipe. All the water from the head from the header tank comes down the drive pipe. And this is situated at the bottom of the pumping system, if you like. That's right. So we have a reciprocating perpetual motion machine. And on one stroke, some water is forced up through what's known as a clack valve. It's like a rubber non-return valve in the body of the pump. And on the counter stroke, some water is released through the waste gate. And that reciprocation continues and has continued without stop since 2002. That's unbelievable. And it, it beats at roughly between 60 and 70 beats per minute. And you were telling me earlier how many uh, houses or buildings are supplied from this water supply. And it's quite incredible because for, the, for people who can't see this, I mean, it's 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 not that much bigger than a, a big rugby ball, the center dome of it. That's right. It's maybe twice the size of that. And the pipes were an inch and a half or two inches in diameter coming in. I think the drive pipe is an inch and a half. It's an inch and a half, okay. Uh, or a, perhaps even an inch and a quarter. And the delivery pipe, which goes to the, takes the water up to the cistern at the top of the system, is an inch and a half. And those pipe dimensions are as specified by Blake's when the system was put in in 1945. Really? To, to make sure that it could work with the inflow-outflow and to pressure the So in 1945, you sent all your dimensions and, and heights to Blake's, and they would... And they determined they, your inflow-outflow they, they, they worked out the maths and told you what size of pipe you needed. In fact, when we dug the system up to replace the drive pipe, we found that the pipe necked down one length up. Mm. So we had to replicate that. Um, a fascinating project and a lot of hard work. So I'll tell you about what the water is used for. And when we revived the pump in 2002, the water initially was used only for feeding a few field trucks. And once we came to realise that the supply was reliable we plugged more field troughs in and then we took the whole of the steading onto the supply. Then we took a new line all the way down to Glensoch Lodge where I stay and we put Glensoch Lodge and the garden onto the supply. In fact, the driver for getting the water down to Glensoch Lodge initially was so that we could water the garden. But 
we decided that this was very good water, mm. and it was nicer water than what comes out of the public main. So <laughs> this is what we drink at Glensock Lodge. Yeah. Uh, uh, incredible! Uh, oh, I'm just—I just noticed in the corner here. That's this the, is old the old one. one. That's so the old one. Was this refurbished or new? Before I came to Glensock, the old pump was removed and a new pump was put in place. Okay. I'm not really sure that there was anything wrong with the old pump. It might have needed servicing. What What we discovered yeah. was that the drive pipe was rotten and full of holes. Yeah. This system can't work if any air is entering it. Okay. So you you may see the odd bubble coming through this, and that's all it can cope with and I know there's a pinhole up the pipeline and that's where the odd bubble is coming from you mentioned um, Byron you mentioned the rugby ball well that's actually an air chamber and I can just release a bit of air from that just now Okay, so there's a tap on the front of it there's two taps one on the sort of dome shaped rugby ball dimensioned top and essentially what those taps are there for is to release any water from the system as it's being primed. Mm-hmm. But once it comes up to full pressure, that contains air. And that damps the whole system. So this is continually full of air? Yes. If that was full of water, the system would blow itself apart quite okay. quickly. The, and I've come here on an occasion where that has become flooded with water. Mm. And the pump sounds dreadful. Um... But no problems today. It's can you can you see the jet of water? Yeah, coming I, out the I back? noticed that coming out the back. What is that from? So on each return stroke, a bubble of air is drawn in, and on the counter stroke, a jet of water is shot out. Uh, okay. So de- depending on the pressure within the body of the pump, it will either draw a bubble of air in or shoot a jet of water out. And the bubble of air that is drawn in is used to replenish the air in the bell jar. If it wasn't drawing air in, the air in the bell jar would gradually dissolve into the water column mm-hmm. and the bell jar would flood. So that's just. It has to be replenished all the so time. Calibrated so that it just continually tops itself up. That's right. Yes. Incredible. It's. Uh, to, to see visually, it, it's the most incredibly uh, simple system, really, once it's understood. I, and amazing that it can run for so long. What amazes me is that Mr. Blake worked out the maths yeah. in the first place and designed and built a pump that would do this job incredible and, and this is a pump has been pumping away here since 1945 and is there does this particular little pump house and, and system here have any sort of great uh, historical significance apart, apart from obviously the fact that it's it's old or I mean are there are these pumps hiding around Scotland there are a few of these in operation around Scotland there's actually a type A and a type B hydram, and if you're into your hydrams, you'll know this. But down in Yorkshire, where a lot of good potable water runs out down at valley level, out of the limestone, but a farm might be a couple of hundred feet up the hill, there are a lot of hydrams to to capture that water and to take it up to to pump it up to farms. <laughs> Incredible, and. It's a, a, a man-made mechanical part of the land management, yes. which is uh, slightly different to what we have been what, what we have been talking about, which uh, I, is involving I, livestock and wildlife. I can stand here and watch the water being ejected from the pump and be quite mesmerised. It, it's by strangely it. soothing, and, actually. And <laughs> it is, isn't it? I, I, I'm, I, and I, I also love the fact that it's while it's a mechanical pump, it is powered by the 
weight of the water in mm. the drive pipe, and that's all that's powering. Just purely the fact that the water comes Doesn't out r- above the hill, above us. It- it is, it's driven by natural hydraulic pressure. Mm. It doesn't require any electricity. Nothing. It, it, it's just about as sustainable a machine as we could get. And I think that fits very well with our ethos for ma- the way we manage Glensaw. Absolutely. Well, I'm absolutely delighted that I've had the chance to look inside this red-bricked, uh, red-doored uh, red building after so many years and discover the source of the thud, thud, thud. <laughs> So that's it inspected. I won't be back here for a month. Perfect. I try and look in about every month and check that everything's okay. <laughs> well, it's been uh, it's been a pleasure to have a chance to walk around with you and, and talk about and see in the flesh some of the aspects that we talked about around the table. And uh, I'm having walked back along the lock now, I'm, I'm getting the urge to pick up my fishing rod again because it's been far too long since I've been up here. <laughs> so I think I'm going to have to go and... Uh, Resurrect my club membership so I can get myself yeah. up here again. Well, thanks for the opportunity to talk to you about Glen Sock, and I always enjoy showing visitors round. And I think every conversation I have with every visitor is different, and it, 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 it's driven by your questioning mm. and also your your particular area of interest. I, I think it's something that not a lot of people will know about, but definitely you know should know about, and it, it's on the doorstep for a large number of people probably have no idea really what what uh, has gone on here and what goes on but here currently. I, I should end by saying that all visitors are welcome at Glensock and we, we welcome visitors on an ad hoc basis. Mm. So how how would they go about that? They just turn up at the farm. Yeah, because it's signposted it, in office. And, and the, there is actually a place for visitors to park and they should find a leaflet guiding them along a walk which will bring them along the shore of Loch Sock. Mm-hmm. But they're frankly welcome to walk anywhere well there you go you've just had the invite to, to to come so if you live locally definitely go and do it thanks very much for your time pleasure well i hope you enjoyed that show very fascinating and one of the longer shows we had for a wee while now actually we've had we've had longer shows in the past but we've not had a, a, a two-hour one for some time no. which actually is the general complaint we get from people is the shows aren't long enough so there you go we've done it and, and the show that we actually did a walk around which i quite enjoyed actually it, it was it was nice doing that as a bit of variety so i think we're going to have to try and bring you more shows from the field but right now my brother is scrolling through a whole bunch of names because as promised at the start we are going to give every single person who donated to our chimpanzee sanctuary cause through Ivan Carter a shout out. Apologies. There are some people, I think, that gave money um, to Ivan and we can't remember all of directly. Uh, and if we miss you off by mistake, apologies. We will catch you on the next time. There's also a few people that have given cash. Well, my dad did a... Oh, yeah, he he did a little competition shoot. Uh, with a couple of friends about two weeks ago and they all entered with a little bit of money so he is uh, yet to give that to us we're going to pick it up this weekend we're going to add it to the total so a thank you to our dad and our friends I think um, Martin Hodge was there Martin Hodge was there Martin Anderson was there Mike Sevenoaks Mike Sevenoaks was there and Uh, Ralph Young Yep, I think you've accounted for them all. So thank yeah. you to all of you gentlemen uh, for donating to the chimpanzees as well. Well, Ralph Young, actually. You get two mentions because you actually donated before you went on the shoot as well. Yes, you did. So thank you very yeah. much. Okay, so let's start from the beginning. We have Craig White, Gavin Knights, 
Pete Dodsworth, Duncan Mayman, uh, Benedict, I think it's Booker, Booker. It's uh, there's a few people from abroad, so apologies. Um, I'm gonna have to take a minute to go into some of these because some people have only left uh, their first name. Sorry, oh, their last name. I've only got a Foster. Well, you can just give here. them a Mister Foster, Mister Foster, or Mrs. Foster. It doesn't. It doesn't give a, a title. Um, Andrew uh, Willits, Alan Johnson, James Marchington, uh, Gareth. Is it Bertels? Could be. Barn, you can maybe I'll help need me to look over your shoulder yeah. here. I think Bertels. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Leanne McLennan. Uh, what do you think that one Tobias. is? Tobias. Tobias Bennett. Bennett. Sorry, we're really screwing up these uh, names here. We we didn't look at the list before we started. Uh, Douglas Smith, Christian Larson, uh, Liam Stokes, Lucy Moore, Eric Stewart, John Shields, uh, Richard Gold, James Clapham. Oh, yeah, James Clapham I used to work with in the oil. Yep. Luke Little, uh, Joe Goss, who is uh, Best Dear Call, who we're covering at the, the show. I think he actually bought a mug. Uh, from there, uh, Matthew, is it Nib? Yep. And we have Charlotte Jameson, uh, Craig, Craig White, White again. And, yeah. and again, thank you very much. James Craig. Marchington again. Paul Wilkie, uh, Jules Burley, uh, Andrew Lawrence, Toby Murray, and I'm actually going to have to go in because uh, I think we're getting towards the, the end of this list here. I think that's that's almost it. If we missed anyone out, I'm going to go through the list, and if we missed anyone out, you can get a shout-out on uh, the following show. So that's it, and that's it for another week. Uh, well, another two weeks. Uh, but we will be posting uh, live updates from the Northern Shooting Show, so definitely go and check out our social media feeds, be that Instagram with uh, the live videos that are on there now, or on Facebook podcast, Into the Wilderness. We're everywhere. If you ever want to find out what's going on in our world, the best place is to go to www.thepacebrothers.com. It has all the links for everything you need to know, the different ways to download this show, because there's more than one way you can get across multiple platforms if you haven't figured out the best way to listen to it yet. It also has the blog posts. It also has any competitions that are running, um, which on the website right now you can win a Swazi jacket. And... I think that's well. The one thing which we should have really mentioned at the start is that we, but it's all over social media, is that we're giving everybody a chance right now to win two tickets for the Northern Shooting oh, yeah. Show this weekend. Uh, we were going to announce it on this show, but we want to give everybody one more day since uh, it, the show only starts on Saturday. So we're going to go live on on social media tomorrow, somewhere towards the end of Friday. Uh, well, we're it's Thursday tomorrow. It is Thursday tomorrow, but we'll go live on Friday. Friday. No, it's Friday tomorrow. Oh, we don't even know what day of the week it is. This is why you shouldn't say days of the week on podcasts. <laughs> no, it should. Okay, so tomorrow, which is Friday, which is the day before the Northern Shooting Show, somewhere towards the end of it, we will go live and we will give two tickets away. Well, we're traveling. Well, we can maybe do it while you're traveling. Okay. Probably not the person who's driving. No, but... probably not. <laughs> Although the Hilux might have be fancy enough that you can do that kind of maybe. stuff. Maybe. I, th- I heard it drives itself. If almost. It Actually, it does tell you if you're veering out of your lane. That's I've ridiculous. never had a car Does it park itself? Uh, you do, it probably does, I don't know. Some of these cars do now. Because our parents have got a Focus that parks itself, and it's quite freaky. Yeah. 
There's a lot of cars that now do that. I remember when that first came out on Top Gear. Do you remember that? It was a BMW, I think. <laughs> and it, it crashed into one of the cars in the street. Well, it's like the, um, the Volvo when they first brought out the, the automatic brake system that it could detect if someone stopped in front of you. Yeah. And it was using articulated lorry, and it plowed straight into the back of it at 30 miles an hour and would have killed everybody. Uh, but I think, I think, I think, I think the technology that. has moved on. That was like five, six years ago now. So we're not that far away from self-driving cars, hmm. I would say. Well, they're already on the road. I think Google have some. Yeah. But we, this isn't a car show, <laughs> no, sadly. <it's> <laughs> sadly, as much as we would love to run one. Uh, so we're going to leave you for two weeks. And you will be here. I'm not sure whether the one in two weeks' time is going to be from the Northern Shooting Show or I was actually at a symposium at the start of the uh, Council for International Conservation last week in Geneva. And I met just a whole host of really interesting people. I listened to some fantastic speeches and also participated in some of the debates uh, myself. So we're just gathering that sort of material together in a way that'll be uh, easy to listen to. And as soon as we've got that for you, we'll put it out. So it'll either be that or the Northern Shooting Show. Yep. So see you in two weeks. Don't forget this podcast is supported by the Scottish Association. Association. Twice I've screwed that up. Association for Country Sports. They're at the Northern Shooting Show. Go check them out. Find out what they're about. And say hello to us. Yeah.